even unchurched, unbelieving men know that Christians are all about seeing men conform to the character of God. They probably can't quote Romans 8.29, which states that whom God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son. But even they, the unchurched, expect that confessing Christians should have a level of likeness to the moral image of God. To be honest, to be sexually pure, trustworthy with money. Today in our text, we will hear the biblical foundations of this widespread understanding. When we hear the Apostle Peter say, Believer, your God is holy. He calls you to be holy in all your conduct. This morning, we're going to dig deep into the Word of God. In fact, we'll even have an exhortation in our text to sharpen and use our minds. And so you'll need your Bible. You'll need your Bible open. I hope you'll have that there. Let's seek the help of the Lord as we prepare to dig into this most important text. Oh, gracious God, we do not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from your mouth. Make us hungry now for this heavenly food, that it may nourish us today in the ways of eternal life through Jesus Christ, the bread of heaven. Amen. Hope you're looking at 1 Peter 1, verses 13 through 16. And you will notice where our text picks up, it begins with a therefore. For those of you who've forgotten everything you learned in your sophomore year of English class and parts of speech, look at verse 13. It begins with a conjunctive adverb. You knew that, right? Synonyms for therefore, you could just as easily translate this as thus or consequently or as a result. And so if you're going to properly interpret verse 13, you need to recognize it begins a new section that's based on something that's said before. And you have to ask this. When you look at that first word of verse 13, what has gone before this therefore? Because verse 13 is saying everything I'm going to say now is based on what's gone before. Thankfully, we don't have to dig too far because only 12 verses precede this therefore. So let your eyes go up to the top of the passage, beginning in 1 Peter chapter 1, and here's the content. Now you'll notice, I was so thankful that last week our speaker, our Bible conference speaker, Caleb Cangelosi, used the same dynamic of the indicative and the imperative. What you have in verses 1 through 12 is one long statement of the indicative, where Peter is stating what the believer just is. We're told in verse 2 that they are God's elect. In verse 3, that they're born again. In verse 4, that believers have an inheritance awaiting them. In verses 6 and 7, that the believer will be tested by trials. In verse 8, that believers love their Savior. And for 12 verses, Peter gives no commands, no admonitions, no exhortations. He just celebrated the sovereign Lord who elects and regenerates and preserves. All that's the indicative. Today, we're going to begin with the imperative in verse 13. Peter will begin to say, in light of these truths that I've just told you in the first 12 verses, in light of these truths, you must cultivate hope. You must be marked by a serious state of mind. You must be marked by obedience to your loving Father's commands, and you absolutely must 
strive after holiness. Now this model of the indicative and the imperative, this is a normal New Testament epistolary pattern. You see it in Paul's writings. Ephesians is the simplest example of this model because for three chapters, Ephesians 1, 2, and 3, you have nothing but the indicative. And then in Ephesians 4, 5, and 6, you have the imperative. And when I preached to Ephesians several years ago, I said, typical congregation will be divided between indicative people and imperative people. There are people who, man, they love to hear the indicative. They love to hear about what God has done for us in Christ. He's elected us. He's redeemed us. But when you come to the imperative, they say, oh, I don't like the imperative so much. You have other folks who say, would you hurry up with the indicative and get to telling me what it is I need to be doing? But the Bible doesn't let us have one or the other. It tells us the balanced Christian life is both and Peter does the exact same thing in his letters that Paul does. And so what we see from this, this model of the indicative in the first 12 verses and now the imperative, is that the consideration of our privileges, the indicative, should stir us up to the study of sanctification. And that's exactly the model that we see Peter following. And so look at verse 13. Peter begins to talk about the imperative, and he speaks of the command to you to gird up the loins of your mind. Now, this phrase is clearly a figure of speech since the mind doesn't have loins. I hope you know that. It's an image of a person wearing, it's a first century image, wearing flowing garments and taking those garments into your belt as a man does so that he could run or move more freely and quickly without tripping over his clothes. In that culture, the loincloth hung down, something like a slip, along with the robe, making it difficult to run. So if you're going to do some hard work or some running, you had to pull up your loincloth and the the ends of your robe and tuck them into your belt. You had to cinch up, tighten up, if you're going to work or run effectively. And so look at the figure of speech in verse 13 and understand the way Peter's using it. For Peter to tell us to gird up the loins of your mind, it intends, he intends us to be, get prepared for action, for hard work. The part of you that is to be girded up is your mind. Where Peter says you're to gird up the loins of your mind. Notice the imperative. The first imperative of the text is in 1 Peter is to do something with your mind. Peter's giving you a divine command about your thinking. He's telling you, focus, prepare, concentrate. I know professing Christians who can focus on a video game for an hour. They can focus on a movie for two hours straight. Their mind is girded up then. But if you preach an expository sermon for 35 or 40 minutes, they're they're gone within five minutes. They don't know how to gird up their minds about God's truth and spiritual things. It's interesting that our Reformed confessional heritage tells us and, and takes this text into mind about the necessity, the gospel duty of girding up the loins of our mind is our, our confession of faith, that document that all our elders and deacons and pastors subscribe to, the Westminster Confession of Faith and Catechisms, repeatedly 
confesses this as a matter of public theology that we are always to be preparing and sharpening our mind to think God's thoughts after him. For example, in Westminster Confession 21, our confession about the Sabbath, it says the Sabbath is kept holy when men, after a due preparing of their hearts, we recognize that in order even to celebrate this day properly, we have to gird up our minds, prepare our hearts. And then our larger catechism, question 160, says, what is required of those that hear the word preached? The answer comes back that they attend upon it with diligence, preparation, and prayer. In other words, they're to gird up the loins of their mind. And then again, our larger catechism asking question 171, how are they that receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper to prepare themselves before it? The answer comes back, They're to prepare themselves for it by examining themselves of their being in Christ, of their sins and wants, of the truth and measure of their knowledge, of their faith and repentance, of their love to God and the brethren, of their charity to all men, of their forgiving those that have done them wrong, of their desires after Christ and new obedience, and the renewing of the exercise of those graces by serious meditation and fervent prayer. You have an opportunity even tonight before you come to the Lord's table to gird up your minds, prepare on thinking of these things. Living as a Christian at all times, but especially during times like those of Peter in the first century and the church we're undergoing, times of societal pressure and persecution, the marginalization of Christians requires a sharp mind, a developing intellect, unlike Eastern mysticism, which says, We're going to bypass the mind. We're going only to the emotions and your experience. Being a Christian is being a person of the book, a revelation from God that he must cognitively understand and apply to daily affairs. The Christian can never expect to please God if he's not willing to work hard at thinking to, to use the phrase of Peter, to gird up the loins of his mind. The professing believer who refuses to discipline and feed his mind is in disobedience to this scripture and many other texts. Christianity places no premium on ignorance. It's not anti-intellectual. In fact, Peter calls that time your anti-intellectual time. Look at verse 14. He says, not conforming yourselves to the former lust as in your ignorance. Peter says, here's the mark of the unbeliever. He's ignorant of spiritual truths. Here's the difference in the believer. He hungers and thirsts after more and more knowledge of God. And so the first imperative that Peter gives you, following fast on the heels of all your privileges in the indicative is, gird up your mind. Look at the next imperative in verse 13. The next one is to be sober. Both of these, girding up your mind and being sober, point to a fundamental seriousness about right thinking. The sober man is the one who doesn't run hot and cold or fly to temperamental extremes. The sober man has a calm, clear head. He judges with clear deliberation. Nothing clouds his mind, whether substances or worldly thinking. The sober man is realistic. Drunkenness and other substance abuse brings delusions. But not the sober man. His mind is clear. The sober man is is not blown about by every wind of doctrine. 
Later in this same epistle in chapter 5, in 1 Peter 5, Peter will tell his readers to be on guard, be sober, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking someone he may devour. And what we find is when we then reach into 2 Peter, Peter is repeatedly telling his readers to cultivate this spiritual discipline of sobriety, of a serious mindset. This soberness, what we're going to find out, is always appropriate for every believer. In Titus 1 and 2, the Apostle Paul lays down qualifications for an elder. He must be sober. Paul as well, when he's walking through in Titus chapter 2, those character traits that each segment of the church must possess. When he comes to older men, Paul tells them in Titus 2.2, older men should be sober. When he comes to younger men, you think he's going to say, well, younger men, you don't really have to be so sober. Nope. Titus 2.6, he tells younger men, you must be sober. And what we find out is this is a universal character trait that they must be men who know how to gird up their minds, who to think clearly. That's what a sober man does. But then Peter gets into the bulk of his imperatives. Look at verse 13. You're commanded to rest your hope fully upon future grace. Peter, look carefully and dig in deep with me in verse 13. Peter is speaking of a historical event to come. He's speaking of future grace when he says, rest your hope fully upon the grace that is to be brought to you. That's a future event. This hasn't yet happened. Peter's talking about something that was future for his readers and future for you and I, the grace that is to be brought to you. Now, it's very interesting to compare Peter and Paul, the two, along with John, the dominant apostolic writers. Paul says the exact same thing. He tells the believer that you're always to be thinking about future grace. See, when we think about grace, oftentimes we think about, well, God showed grace to me in May of 1980 when he saved me. And we consign grace to a past event. Peter and Paul say, oh, no. God showed grace to you before the foundation of the world when he chose you. God showed grace to you when he drew you. That was not because of your deserving. And he will show grace to you in the future. Keep one finger here and look at Ephesians 2. And I want you to compare how, how Peter and Paul both speak of this great event. In Ephesians 2 verse 4. <clears throat> Paul wants to talk as well about this future grace. In Ephesians 2 verse 4, Paul says, But God who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ, by grace you have been saved, and raised us up all together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. Here it comes. That in the ages to come... He might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. Now, do you notice what both Peter and Paul want to talk about? They want to say, you haven't seen nothing yet. If you think you've been the recipient of God's grace, Peter says in our text in 1 Peter 1.13, when Jesus returns at his second coming, he's going to bring you grace spectacularly and deserve blessing. 
<coughs> Paul says in Ephesians 2, 7, then all through eternity, the Father will pour out riches of his grace upon you in Christ, not based upon your deserving or your performance, but because he has purposed to in love. So what is this believer to do with this knowledge of future grace, with this knowledge that grace is coming? God is going to pour out all of these blessings. Look at our text very carefully, 1 Peter 1.13. This is why you need your Bible open, so you can see the imperative to you. Peter says, you are to rest your hope fully upon it. What Peter is talking about here is nothing less than the Christian hope. It's not mystical, the Christian's hope is. Peter will say later in 1 Peter 3, the Christian hope is something the believer can explain and articulate. The Christian hope is the sure knowledge of the erasure of all sin, pain, and tears. When you are going through right now, pain, difficulty, trials, relational difficulty. You need this hope that says, only a little while longer. And then grace will be brought to me at the revelation of Jesus Christ. The Christian hope is our, our assurance that Christ will, at his return and final judgment, resurrect our decayed bodies and transform them into the likeness of his resurrected body. This hope is not based on feelings, but the objective, inscripturated promises of a God who cannot lie. Our hope is based squarely on the infinite merit of Christ. We have a sure and certain expectation of future blessings because Christ has earned them, bought them, merited them for us. Now look carefully at verse 13. <clears throat> no one has a right to have hope unless it's based on the Word of God and the Son of God. No one has a legitimate hope who's hoping in their present circumstances. Look at verse 13. What is it we're to hope in? Future circumstances. No one has a good hope if they're hoping in their self and their work, since the only legitimate hope, are you looking at verse 13, is the grace of God. Undeserved favor. When Peter commands in verse 13 his readers to rest their hope fully upon the grace, he's commanding, it's an interesting Greek construction, he's commanding a one-time act. <clears throat> he's saying, settle it firmly in your mind, not thinking that's strung out over time in a process. He's saying, make that decided choice of forsaking all other hopes and clinging alone to Christ. But then the weight of Peter's imperatives comes in verses 14 through 16. Look at what Peter tells the believer to do. Again, all this is based on the indicative that he's told them in the first 12 verses. He tells them to put on obedience and put off the former lusts done in ignorance. Every true Christian knows that obedience to the command of Scripture is the way the believer demonstrates his love for Christ. Let me say that again. Every true Christian knows that obedience to the commands of Holy Scripture is the way the believer demonstrates his love for Christ. That's why Jesus says in John 14, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. 
And look at what Peter does in verse 14. Peter tells the believer, listen to me oh so carefully here. He tells the believer that the motive and the power for mortifying their ignorant former lust is nothing less than the doctrine of adoption. Look at what Peter says in verse 14. As obedient children. Peter brings up your status now as an adopted child of God. He tells you as an obedient child, as an adopted child, this is why you should mortify your former lusts. Adoption is not a privilege given to all people. All men, of course, are image bearers of God. All men have great worth and dignity and so should be treated as such. But by nature, no one is naturally a child of God. In fact, Jesus says, by nature, all men are children of wrath, children of the devil. Men become sons of God, we're told in John 1, verse 12, by faith in Christ alone. When that adoption happens, old family ties are broken. Now you're members of God's household. Now Jesus is not ashamed to call us brother, we're told in Hebrews 2. What do we have in common with him? By nature, we're a cause of shame and disgrace to him. He perfectly mirrors the image and glory of God, and we've spoiled that. He served his father with joyful obedience, but we've rebelled against the father's will. But he took our nature, our humanity, and makes us holy, brings us into his own family. And because he's cleansed us, he's not ashamed of us. Now, I want you to think about the rights and privileges we have of adoption. Look carefully at that little phrase in verse 14. As obedient children. Peter is saying, here is is the motive and the power for you to say no to sin, for you to mortify sin. Why? Because you are adopted children. Now, let me remind you of the doctrine of adoption and some of its glories and beauties. We have rights and privileges as the adopted sons of God. We may call the first person of the Trinity. It's staggering to me to say this. No old covenant Jew would have said this. We may call the first person of the Trinity Abba. It's always a moving privilege when someone you admire takes you aside and said, you can call me, and they give some sort of familial name. There's a, a glorious, godly woman who was on the pulpit committee that called me. She came out to Las Vegas and was part of the committee that flew out in the spring of 2000. And she was here. She sat right there. She was a sainted woman. She was, a, she was sort of a, a model of Christian womanhood. And her name was Mrs. Kennan Patton. She used to correct my grammar, and I appreciated it. She was, she was a, a wonderful woman, and she came up to me after about six months, and she decided the time was right to say this. She walked up to me, stood straight, and she said, Carl, no longer do you have to call me Mrs. Patton. From now on, I want you to call me Kenan. I think that was the greatest privilege that's ever happened in this room to me because this was an astoundingly wonderful woman. But that privilege that I, I valued so much, pales in significance with what we as adopted children have. Jesus even teaches us every time we cry out to the first person of the Trinity on a daily basis to begin this way. 
Abba, our Father. Jesus gives us access to his Father and says, you may now speak to him as I speak to him, with the same freedom and the same sense of privilege, with the sure knowledge that he loves you. This is why Jesus tells us to pray in his name. Oh, but there's so much more. So many other privileges of being the adopted children. We're now the recipients of the Father's tender care. We're told in the Psalms, in Psalm 103, that he pities us. As a father pities his children, so the Lord pities those who fear him. He protects us. He provides for us. He tells us not to worry, but he'll give us our daily bread. But there's more. We can now freely and rightfully enjoy the family riches and bounty. An unbeliever, even in eating and drinking to sustain his life, has no right to take what he's taking from God. He's robbing God, continually breaking the Eighth Commandment. But we have a right, because we are his children, to enjoy all the bounties of God's creation. It's our Father's stuff. I know this with my own family. If my children, even now in their 30s, walk into my house, pick up my car keys off the table, get in my car and drive away, they have that right. But if someone else's child walks in my door, snags my car keys and takes off, we'll call the cops and have him arrested for breaking and entering in grand theft auto. My children have privileges. Listen to what they do. Sometimes they even walk into my closet and take my shoes and wear one of my ties. And I don't even say anything except, that tie looks pretty good on you, pal. Well, there are other privileges of adoption. One of those privileges is we are to imitate our Father. We are to, Jesus tells us in the Sermon on the Mount, we have the privilege of showing the family likeness in our conduct. And our adoption is also another privilege, is the foundation for a life of trust. Jesus immediately in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 6, after telling the disciples not to be warriors, tells them, your heavenly Father will take care of you. One of our great privileges as adopted sons is knowing day by day that we can give up all fretting and worrying about provision. Our Father will take care of us. We also have a new status as adopted children. We're no longer slaves, but sons. And because we are sons, the Father gives us the Holy Spirit to indwell us, and He even calls the Spirit, when He sends Him into our hearts, the Spirit of adoption. We also have, even though many of us don't view it as a a privilege, one of the great privileges we have of adoption is fatherly discipline. Our father's not a permissive parent. He doesn't spoil his children and wink at their disobedience. We're told in Hebrews 12, he disciplines us for our good that we may share in his holiness. But then perhaps the greatest aspect of our adoption is a royal inheritance, We have the certainty of sharing with Christ, being joint heirs with him, of having all the Father's riches and glory. These are some of the family rights and benefits of adoption. Look carefully at verse 13. What is it, or verse 14? What is another aspect of our adoption? As obedient children, as those who are adopted, that's to motivate you to put off sin and long for holiness. But then the most familiar section of this exhortation is that final imperative dangling out there in verse 15 and 16. Look carefully at it. Peter tells us that pursuing holiness 
that closely conforms to God's holiness is the Christian's full-time job. Peter begins by reminding us in verse 15 that the triune God is holy. Look what he says in verse 15. He who called you is holy. Now, that assertion needs some instruction in our day because our culture has forgot about the holiness of God. You remember in Exodus 15, Moses asked the rhetorical question, Who is like you, glorious in holiness? The answer is, no one is like God. He's a minority of one. The prophet Habakkuk says in Habakkuk 1, Lord, you are of purer eyes than to behold evil, and you cannot look on wickedness. John states it this way in 1 John 1. God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. In a world of ethical dilemmas and gray areas, he's absolutely pure. He's unaffected by the shadow of sin. Our God's not nice. He's holy. The greatest picture of this is Isaiah 6, where we see the prophet. He comes into the presence of the Holy Son of God sitting on his throne. And he sees all the angels encircling the throne. These are holy angels who've never sinned, but they are so struck by the holiness of God that they cover their eyes and they call out to one another, holy, holy, holy. And when Isaiah sees this vision, he's undone, ruined, the Hebrew word means in Isaiah 6. He says, I'm devastated by the holiness of God. He goes on to confess his sin and that of the nation being profane speech. He shows that no one can stand in the presence of God without becoming profoundly and devastatingly aware of his own moral wretchedness. Even sinless creatures, even the sinless angels, are so struck by the purity of God, all they can say in his presence is, holy, holy, holy. So how much more should sinful men like you and I be awestruck? This holiness of God that Peter refers to in verse 15. Look at what Peter asserts. He asserts the holiness of God. He says, he who called you is holy. It's an assertion. This holiness of God is infinite. There's no end to it. He's holy in every thought. He's holy in all his plans. He's holy in every emotion and holy in every relationship. God's holiness is immutable. His holiness will never change. He's never been more holy or less holy. Unlike you and I who are commanded to grow and make progress in our sanctification, as Peter will tell us in 2 Peter 3, the Lord cannot grow. He cannot make progress in holiness because he has always been morally perfect. God's holiness is shown in his works. We're told in Psalm 145, That the Lord is righteous in all his ways. His justice is holy. His power is holy. His mercy is a holy mercy. Nothing but that which is morally perfect can proceed from him. When he created, he pronounced it all very good, which he couldn't have done if there had been anything unholy about it. God's holiness is shown by his law. His moral law, the Ten Commandments, forbids sin in any fashion. And what makes the moral law so holy is the moral law is simply a reflection of God's holy character. The reason, for example, that God says not to lie, break the ninth commandment, is that he's always honest. He cannot lie. The reason he says to keep the Sabbath day holy, the fourth commandment, 
and rest from labor is that's precisely what he did after he labored six days in creation. This is why David can write in Psalm 19, the law of the Lord is perfect. This is why Jesus said in Matthew 5, don't think that I came to destroy the law. God's law is the mirror image of his perfect holiness. But oh, God's law is best seen, best seen in the person of Christ. When God took flesh, guess what one attribute of Jesus was constantly spoken of? His holiness. His holiness was prophesied by Gabriel to Mary even before he was born. When Gabriel came and spoke to Mary and said, The Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the highest will overshadow you. Therefore, that holy one who is to be born will be called the Son of God. You remember Jesus' own testimony about his own holiness when he says in John 8, Which of you convicts me of sin? It was a rhetorical question. No one could because he had no sin to be convicted of. Even the thieves on either side of him on the cross saw it and confessed of all things, hanging there stripped naked on the cross. The thieves said in Luke 23, This man has done nothing wrong. Jesus' closest associates recorded this. John, the disciple who was closest to Jesus, says in 1 John 3, In him was no sin. Even the demons confessed the holiness of Christ when they said in Luke 4, Let us alone. We know who you are. You're the Holy One of God. Why is this a constant thread running through the New Testament? For one reason. Only a sinless person, only a perfectly holy person could rescue sinful fallen men. One Sin in word, thought, or deed would have disqualified Jesus as our substitute. That's the setup for verse 15 and 16. Look carefully at verse 15 in our text. Peter says, but as he who called you is holy. That's who our God is. You also must be holy in all your conduct. Because God is holy. Peter is saying, he's saying you and I should learn to think analogically this way. Because our God is holy, you must desire to be like him. In fact, he commands it even of his Old Testament people. Peter here is quoting Leviticus 19.2, where even way back in the Old Covenant, God tells his people, you shall be holy for I, the Lord your God, am holy. Isn't it interesting that the Lord never commands you to be sovereign or omniscient? But dozens of times in Scripture especially in our text. He commands you to be holy. That's the primary means of pleasing God by imitating him in his holiness. Knowing that, how often do you plead with God to make you holy? So often our prayers flood the heavens with requests for Uncle Bill's sore thumb and travel mercies for a vacationing friend, but we're hardly ever found pleading with God Create in me a clean heart, as the psalmist teaches in Psalm 51. But what our text is teaching us is our God is a holy God and will have a holy people. Let me make three applications from this text for us. The first is rooted in verse 13. The Holy Spirit is speaking to you today about having a mature Christian mind. 
When Peter commands you, the believer, to gird up the loins of your mind, this speaks to a determined preparation, not just a mindless way of life. The vast majority of, of confessing believers are, are lax in their thinking, irrational, ignorant, uninformed, ruled by feelings and not facts, beset by a thousand wandering thoughts, unable to concentrate and fix their thinking for more than three minutes in a row. But those who are not exerting themselves, girding up the loins of their mind to learn the things of God will only gain any spiritual or biblical knowledge by accident. But remember the great commandment emphasizes loving God with all our heart and strength and soul and mind. That's the great commandment as Jesus teaches it in Mark 12. Burning hearts are not nourished by empty heads. God's truth is something that must be learned. It involves the mind. That's the fuel for the spiritual fire that flames the Christian heart. The Christian life begins with learning, learning the propositions of the gospel and proceeds through a process of lifelong learning. This includes deeper discoveries intellectually of, of how to be intimate with God, an ever-increasing grasp of the Bible and its doctrines, a greater biblical awareness of our sin, and increased knowledge of the person and work of Christ. I'll give you a simple example. One of the ways that you can grow in your understanding is, which do you think will be more profitable to you? To hear the preaching of the word 52 times a year or 104 times a year. The person who's serious about taking on the Christian mind will say, you know, I have nothing else to do with my Sundays anyway. The whole day is the Lord's Day. I might as well, as weak as Carl is, you know, at least he's better than Dan. But at least I can put myself under the instruction. Well, he's really not, is he? But I can put myself under the instruction of the word. How else am I going to grow up in Christ unless I give myself to maximum exposure to the, the preaching and teaching of the word of God? When you look at verse 13, that's speaking to you. I don't care if you're 10 or if you're 80. The command to you is to gird up your mind. It's a command about the use and sharpening of your mind. A second application. Look at verse 13 as well. Peter writes these words to people who are undergoing pain and persecution in the present. And look what he says. He says, rest your hope fully upon future grace. The grace is to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. He, he says, here is what you need to give you hope. Look forward. Of course, the world scoffs at this and says, oh, you Christians, you believe in pie in the sky, by and by. Actually, we believe in something much better than pie in the sky. We believe in the blessed hope, the return of Christ, who will bring us a glorious future and a release from all trials. Certainly, the believer is thankful for the past, but he knows the best is always still to come. And so Peter says, in our darkest moments, what is it that gives us hope? It's the second advent of Jesus. It's the coming of Christ in power and glory where he crushes all his enemies and publicly acknowledges his adopted sons and daughters. A third application. I want us to look very carefully at verse 15 and 16 and take these words seriously. Many evangelical teachers today are teaching that 
Obedience to the moral law and the Ten Commandments doesn't matter. And the person who does strive to obey the commands of God in the power of the Holy Spirit, out of gratitude for free grace received, is a legalist. They are ignoring Peter's words. Look at verse 15. This is God's imperative to you today. You must be holy in all your conduct. Do you hear this? For those of you who'd want to try to dispensationalize this away to the old covenant, this is new covenant scripture where God is saying, you must be holy in all your conduct. By the way, how did Jesus view the holiness canon, the moral law? He loved the law. He sang with honesty and joy the words of Psalm 119. Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day. He perfectly obeyed the law. He taught the enduring nature of the law. You remember what he said in Matthew chapter 5, Don't think that I came to destroy the law or the prophets. I didn't come to destroy but to fulfill. Assuredly, I say to you, till heaven and earth pass away, one jot or one tittle will by no means pass from the law. Whoever therefore breaks one of the least of these commandments shall be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus taught his followers to obey the moral law. And in so doing, he affirmed what real love for God looks like. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. In fact, what formula will Jesus recite when he condemns men at the last judgment? He will look lawless men right in the eye, men who didn't care for holiness, and he will say to them, Depart from me. I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness the godly man doesn't just obey the law of God he enjoys obedience he gains happiness when he meditates upon and obeys God's command they're a source of sheer delight he doesn't view the law of God as a heavy burden because it's not but an easy yoke and a light burden hypocrites may love certain doctrines I found that hypocrites love justification by faith they love speculative eschatology The hypocrites never love the commands of God. They can never say with the psalmist, Oh, how I love your law. It's my meditation all the day long. Look carefully at verse 15 and 16. Because here's where Peter puts his weight in terms of his admonition. Peter, by the Holy Spirit, today is calling you, calling us at Woodruff Road, through this word, to love and pursue holiness with zeal. Let's pray together. Our Father, we confess that we've been lazy. We've not girded up our minds to drink deeply of your truth. And so we ask that you take this word that we've heard and enable us to mortify ignorance and put on depths of understanding. Nor have we loved holiness and conformity to your spotless character. Give us grace today to be zealous for holiness, using all the means of grace to be transformed into your likeness. We pray in the name.